0: My name is Sadia. I'm Olina. And I'm Karma. You're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast, which is an eco-socialist podcast based in Toronto. In this episode, we're going to be chatting about Kristen Godsey's 2018 book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence. Just a heads up to the listeners that this episode is being recorded outdoors. And so you will hear
1: all sorts of sounds that uh, you may not be
0: used to. As
1: always, a big thanks to Patreon supporters, without whose support we wouldn't be able to make Oats for Breakfast.
2: If you'd like to become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Breakfast and sign up as a patron. So I guess
0: to begin with, we could talk a little bit about who Kristen Godsey is. She's an American ethnographer and professor of Russian and Eastern European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. So, actually, this book, it came out as a result of an op-ed she had written in the New York
1: Times
0: in 2017
1: um, by the same name. And No, actually, the name was Why Women Had Better Sex Under Socialism. And I think that's an important, uh, what's the word, change that she made, right, for this one?
0: I didn't know that.
1: This one is more uh, positive-looking towards the future, I think, whereas that one was really about only state socialist regimes.
2: Yeah, I guess I the first time I read a book, I read it for a class in my in my undergrad. And the way I read it was just kind of a mainstream intervention into the contemporary feminist politics kind of thing. Like um, she's bringing back kind of economic arguments, kind of broadly, that I think had been left out of contemporary discussions around uh, feminism. Um, I thought it was a good intervention. Like at the time in this class, we were discussing discussing like postmodernism and materialism. Um, we were discussing radical feminism. We we're discussing all these kinds of things. So I thought it was a good intervention into those kind of discussions and kind of the, you know, socialism being a thing again, really, that isn't like a dirty word anymore. So I thought for that, it was a really good intervention. But yeah, I'm interested in, to see, you know, what you guys think, like where what the limitations
1: of the argument are and how far it went. Okay, so I guess first we'll try to talk a little bit about her book and the chapters. So um, Gatsi's argument spreads across uh, six chapters. The first three chapters address work, motherhood, and leadership. Uh, Chapters four and five explore sex. And the very concluding chapter uh, looks at citizenship. And a lot of her chapters um, begin with a personal story I think it's very neat. She says that she's changed the names of people in the story. Um, But I think that gives the audience a kind of like a relatability. Is that the word? Yeah. And I think
0: the personal anecdotes really do help to illustrate some of her points about how gender relations and sexual relations uh, manifest in contemporary U.S. as U.S. and Karma. And so From there, she's able to make broader historical arguments. Um, She says that the main argument of her book is that, quote, unregulated capitalism is bad for women. And if we adopt some ideas from socialism, women uh, all have or women will
1: have better lives. So this book, it seems to us, I think to me, especially in particular, sorry, um, this book is... If anything, it's really not about Eastern Europe or the Soviet Union, but rather it's very much about the United States, the context in which it appears, in which it is published, which is the Trump election and women's marches and protests on the streets that we all remember. Mm -hmm. And I think she's speaking to, and she does say this, she acknowledges this in the book, in the introduction, I think, or the note to the American audience, or the American uh, publication, um, that she is really speaking to left-leaning young people, and especially young women.
2: Yeah, I remember being a little taken aback by that when she first, because she made that in the in the introduction, right? She said, you know, if she she made some kind of comment like. Um, if you're an incel sitting in your basement or something, I'm not talking to you. And I found that, I mean, I guess I understand in in some sense that like she's writing this <laughs> for, I don't know, for a particular audience. But I, I that setting, like that being setting the tone for the whole book, I didn't think was, a, because you're trying to make an intervention that I thought countered that kind of um, approach, right? So it really was counterintuitive. And I felt like that was kind of running throughout the book. She'd make certain interventions that I thought were, uh, yeah, going against the grain of the kind of um, liberal feminism, I guess, right? But then in the same sometimes paragraph, she would kind of counter that, right? Um, And I'm not sure if that's just influenced maybe by the political moment. She wants to make sure that she's not not too edgy or she's making kind of an intervention that's not taken seriously maybe by, by progressives.
1: But yeah, what did you guys think about that? Yeah, I think she she definitely is speaking to women. And as we discussed a little bit before uh, we started recording, she makes socialism a women's issue. And that's very interesting because it seems that men, men are almost irrelevant as agents in this book. And what I, and maybe Sadia can add here, but what I... Immediately thought of is that she kind of reproduces this Soviet mother worker gender contract, which is really about male irresponsibility and absent fathers. And, you know, the state is dealing with women, with mothers who are responsible, who are reproducing the society, who are also workers. And so benefits, laws, everything will kind of benefit women. And yet, in this interesting way, that the other side of this is that women are then burdened uh, with more work because men are just not in the picture they're irresponsible they're on the couch they don't come home they drink you know
0: yeah I think you know whether it's her personal anecdotes that she starts off with within them the women are the protagonists but the men are always the bad guy so one of the anecdotes of you know a very uh, financially controlling husband and the woman feeling kind of trapped um, because she stopped working outside of the house, or in another case, a man who's like a ladies' man, and so he thought that his money would be sufficient to like attract women, and then he doesn't really quite have a, an epiphany about why that's wrong. Or another man who was disappointed that his coworker decided to like leave work to take care of children. So the men in the anecdotes are all sort of you know, what we would think of, like, as contemporary sexist men. So we don't really get a a spectrum of men that way. And even in her anecdotes, historically, like, wherever there are progressive moves, whether in the U.S. or, like, back in the Soviet bloc, the men were always against them. Um, They pushed back. They were resistant. uh, They got in the way. And it just seems to paint a picture of, like well yeah you know we don't need to talk to like right-wing men like they're already like lost causes so we just need our own like camp to build up socialism um which seems to both essentialize in terms of gender but also seems like well is it inevitable that like all these men that's just sort of what will happen that men will be like this
2: Yeah, and it's like, I mean, especially because she seems to be making a material argument, right, that if these, like, she's saying, if the material conditions change in these particular ways, right, then you can have a more egalitarian relationship between men and women. Like, she's mentioned that multiple times in the books, they say that relationship between men and women generally would be better, uh, more egalitarian, less kind of transactional, and so it'll be a more kind of genuine, authentic relationship between people more generally, Um, So she makes those arguments, but then she also seems to kind of, I don't know, like, um, not just in that particular statement where she says, like, uh, that this is a book for particular people, but like you're saying, in the anecdotes, right, and in some of her reiterations that, um, you know, she'll make an argument, and then she'll almost like not downplay it or underplay it, but um, make another argument that, uh, that. I think just theoretically might
1: contradict it. And she doesn't really explore those contradictions. Right. Should we talk more about the contradictions or should we talk a little bit more about like the, the good things, you know, in the book first. And then, because we have many, yeah many points. Right. Um. So can I read this one quote that really stood out to me? And I thought, you know, wow, like this really describes what my grandmother thinks about this. Please. Yeah. And, so, okay. So here's a quote. Um, and, sh- and you know, Gotsi says this is a, it's, it's a joke told in many East European languages. Okay. So I quote, in the middle of the night, a woman screams and jumps out of bed, eyes filled with terror. Her startled husband watches her rush into the be- bathroom and open the medicine cabinet. She then dashes to the kitchen and inspects the inside of the refrigerator. Finally, she she flings open a window and gazes out onto the street. She takes a deep breath and returns to bed. What's wrong with you? Her husband says. What happened? I had a terrible nightmare, she says. I dreamed that we had the medicine we needed, that our refrigerator was full of food, and that the streets outside were safe and clean. How is that a nightmare? The woman shakes her head and shudders. I thought the communists were back in power. (laughs) I thought this was amazing because there's a certain binary that Godsee is speaking to and also reproduces at the same time, which is, do you choose political rights and democracy associated with the political citizenship? Or do you choose comfort, food on the table, stable work, social provisions? Child care, maternity leave, um, health care, and vacations. Which one? And I think this follows us throughout, Hansa's, I guess, and her throughout the book, this sort of division between the political and the economic.
0: Yeah, I think one um, sort of phrase that she repeats every few pages um, is that for one quote, you don't have to have an authoritarian regime to implement policies that ease the conflict between fertility and employment. Or she'll say, we shouldn't have to live under authoritarian regimes to have loving relations based more on mutual affection than on material exchange. So that is the binary, as you're saying. Like that's, And, and that's kind of how the anti-communists frame it. So I'm not sure why she... I mean, she, I guess she's saying that you don't have to have that binary, but the fact that she need, she feels the need to repeatedly articulate it almost um, reinforces that yeah, like to have socialist policies or to have socialism, um, that it comes with authoritarianism.
2: I mean, do you guys think that uh, she's basically then arguing just for uh, kind of social democracy, like a, a broadened social democracy? Do you think that's
1: I don't know if that's what she's arguing, but I pose the question. This is one of my questions for her as well, because I think that the term, well, the title of the book is catchy, right? And it mm-hmm. says, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, socialism as a term, an idea, concept, like imaginary... Alternative to capitalism is used very broadly and it's slippery. Mm-hmm. It's kind of everything. It's an umbrella term. Sometimes she uses socialism with regard to Sweden or like the Scandinavian Nordic welfare states. Sometimes she uses socialism with regard to the postwar Keynesian welfare state here in Canada or the United States. You know, and of course mostly she's using it uh, in relation to Eastern Europe, like state socialist regimes there right in the soviet union and i think that this in itself i think we can ask whether or not this is a strength or a weakness and i think it could be both because in popularizing socialism she doesn't want to really uh, scare her audience so you know guys it's okay it's not only soviet union like remember your healthcare. remember like the unionized jobs you know remember how about Sweden? Uh, they're so egalitarian, you know? Um, it doesn't have to look that, it doesn't have to associate with Stalin, you know? And she even mentions this in her book, right? That, oh, I'm going to be associated with Stalin immediately in Stalinism, right? And she doesn't want to be. So she really tries hard mm-hmm. to push this general idea. And yet she's not focusing on on the scandinavian countries she's not focusing on the us as an example right like in terms of the alternative rather she does focus on eastern europe so i wish she made that argument clear why that's the case what is it about the revolutionary movements that happened there that promised something greater you know that reached further than social democracy and i think that would strengthen her argument in the book
0: yeah, I think, you know, what um, the intervention you made, Alina, about the difference in titles that had versus have, like socialism as present. And I think socialism as present for her is the social democracies in the Nordic countries. And she'll say that, you know, she'll use, instead of using social democracy, she tends to use democratic socialists. And she says that she's referring to countries where socialist principles are championed by parties that compete in free and fair elections and where political rights are maintained. And so I think for her, then, one of the ways that socialist policies, there's a legacy of socialist policies which seems to not come with authoritarianism and and none of the baggage of, um, of the socialist states are present in Nordic countries. And so for her, the U.S., should be aspiring to that and voters in the u.s and women in the u.s should be pushing for those and so in that sense it seems like there can be some like cherry picking of socialist policies without having socialism and she will say that you know these reforms are useful and in fact we don't we shouldn't push for like a a chaotic revolutionary context because it hurts a lot of people Um, Which I mean, you know, sure, yeah, but I think there is a certain naivety to say that the social democracies of the Nordic countries are sufficient, like that's the peak of where we would want to reach and that there's no contradiction there with capitalism or there's no threat to their um, internal welfare states.
2: She also though like at some point what I thought was interesting and I wasn't expecting this is she um she put like maternity leave and um like state run child care um at like at, in a binary like at odds with each other almost like she was like um you know like maternity leave basically still doesn't protect women because then you know based on market forces and stuff then women are seen as not as not as compatible with productivity or whatever right so you're Whereas like childcare, like state-run childcare, is um, that it removes that kind of bias, right? So like she makes these distinctions too between what like a social democracy is, where you just you you know maybe you have some childcare, but the main focus is on maternity leave, versus you know having state-run childcare completely and not have the focus be on maternity leave or whatever. So. I almost feel like, yeah, she's dancing around it maybe because, like you were saying, Alina, she doesn't want to alienate her audience. And maybe that speaks more to where socialism is at today. (laughs) Like that we can't be unequivocal with it yet, right? Um, There's still kind of the Cold War era stuff is still around. Um, There's still that kind of thing. We're not, I think, where we
1: (laughs) want to be necessarily. I agree with you. Yeah, I think that For sure, it's um, because if we put this book in the context of her other scholarly works, right? And she says this in the preface or wherever. She says, you know, this is not an academic uh, text. Please refer to my other works where you want to look at sources and like methods and all kinds of historical data. This is really just an accessible way to talk about socialism and state socialism. So I think, yes, when when we turn to her other works, if we see this in context of her other works, they definitely focus on state socialist regimes and not Scandinavian countries and not the welfare state. But I do think that, and so this is what makes me convinced that um, this is only for the the audience. And I think you're right that this says more about where socialism is at than what she truly believes in, you know, her own political position.
0: So do we feel like she answers her premise in the title that why women have better sex under socialism? Do you feel like that
1: she convincingly gets that across? I think, can I be a liberal on the fence person? <laughs> um, I think yes and no. I think yes. I think partly yes. I think childcare, care, um, economic independence from men is, you know, we can't talk about feminism if there's economic dependence of women on men. Uh, we can't talk about the end of patriarchy or some sort of envisioning post-feminist you know, society without that. So yes, for sure. But, but yet, I think she doesn't deal with the contradictions that are presented in the real existing socialist societies. And those contradictions have to do with the question of how women's emancipation also had to do with, say, peasant versus working women, or women in Russia versus women in Uzbekistan, or within Russia, or uh, queer women, lesbian women. Uh, So I think those things she doesn't touch. And, of course, that makes a big difference in the way in which we understand that era and the way in which we understand contradictions. Did the state socialist promise really fulfill itself? And, of course, in that sense, it didn't, or partly didn't. Mm. Actually, I want to say something else. I think that I wasn't, I don't think that I agree with what I just said. What I want to say is this, that we do need further historical research into understanding how the relationality of oppressions and I don't like intersectionality as a framework I'm critical of intersectionality as a framework but I think women are embodied and that means many things not just sex and often I think that also comes across in her book where she kind of mixes sex and gender like uses them interchangeably but anyway um, I think that we need to specify which women were better off under socialism because some were more better off than others. I think all women were better off. So that's my point. Yes, I think all women were better off, but some more than others. So which women were actually alienated from the state who did not abide by the gender contract of the mother worker, did not want to or did not fit into the heteronormative uh, family, like nuclear family that was instituted in the Soviet Union, for instance, right? What about Roma women? What about Uzbek women? How are their lives different? How did collectivization restructure peasant women's understanding of their world and also the way in which they related to the state and reproduction of society? So I think those things are very important that she doesn't address. Should she? Must she address those in order to make this claim? And that's my question, I guess, to myself as well. Or maybe she doesn't need to, and her claim still stands, right? I think they were better off, but not all, and not in the same way.
0: To your question, Alina, I I wonder if Godzi would respond by, you know, saying what you said. What you said that um, I guess there there was unevenness in how uh, state socialism was experienced by different groups of women. Within the Eastern Bloc and and the Soviet Union, but that overall, there was the wave had lifted all the boats, as they say. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess this is an ethnographic question: whether
1: um, the Roma and Uzbek women have been better off since the fall of socialism. I think they they aren't. I think that's a universal answer. Right. Any like all statistics would point to that everywhere across the Soviet Union across, I think, Eastern Bloc countries as well, no.
0: And not that that's a sufficient reason to be like, okay, well, it was not as bad as it is now, and therefore, you know, we can wholeheartedly accept what it was before. In fact, there was a qu- another quote that she uses to say that this is really common in the Eastern Bloc, that people will say that all the things that the communists told us about communism were lies, but everything they said about capitalism was true. Yeah to answer the question
2: like regarding i think uh, the the kind of american or north american context though i think it made it did make that intervention well especially cuz i don't know if we want to like get into this uh but this is something i think about a lot just kind of what it means to be sexually liberated as a as a woman right there seems to be specific ideas of what that means in today's context and i thought it was a good intervention to say something like to to make the point that you know it's not like we're not conservatives, right? It's not like sexuality is in and of itself. We want we want to be sexually liberated, but you know, like the idea that relationships or like that sex. There's a particular study. She, um, if I, I need to. I should have wrote it down. But it's a study that conservatives put out, right? Talking about how basically, like, I think the pre- like that the the premise was that uh, woman's sex was like somewhat trans- like there's an economy of that, and it's transactional essentially. Um, that like women pay for being instability. That's sexual economic theory. Yes, that's what it is. Sexual economic theory. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, right. And and um, she's saying that it's. Of course, she disagrees with that. That's uh, a fine thing to just uh, accept. But she's saying that it's it's true. Like this is in today's society, and in a lot of ways, this is true. And that we should find actively a way to combat this. Um, so yeah, I thought that particular intervention was really good when we when it comes to to talking about sex specifically because yeah having it be uh, a transactional thing or having it just it's it's bad for everyone all around right it kind of um like kind of dehumanizes uh everyone but women in particular right
1: yeah it's it's definitely about de- um it's about the commodification of sex, yeah, and I think we should explain what is sexual uh no what is economic it called? theory sexual economic theory um to our audience, to our listeners. Basically, I think the argument goes this way. When the availability of sex is low, Mm. men will work harder for it. Mm -hmm. When the availability of sex is high, men will not work hard for it. They will not be responsible. They will not pay for you on a date. Like, literally this.
0: Right. And the availability of women's sex. uh, So it's it's women whose sexuality is um, is a sort of commodity. And so it is um, they're ruled by market forces of supply and demand. The availability of women's sex is... So if the supply is is high, then the price is low. If the supply is low, then the price is high. And women having birth control uh, or having access to abortion or having um, economic independence means that you know, that they, the price of sex is lower because they don't need to sort of hold it in and bargain for, you know, other material goods.
1: Yeah, so sex is a bargaining power for women, right? That's what basically, and she says, yes, this is true in capitalist societies, but we should not think it's a natural thing. Right. Um. Actually, in socialist societies, that's not the case. That's why the divorce rates were over the, up, you know, women left men because they just weren't interested anymore, and they could do that.
0: Right, so she gives a, she quotes a historian of sexuality, Dagmar Herzog, who had uh, shared conversations with several East German men East Germany was under socialist rule. Um, and so she shared conversations about East German men in their late 40s in 2006. And They told her that, quote, it was really annoying that East German women had so much sexual self-confidence and economic independence. Money was useless, they complained. The few extra Eastern marks that a doctor could make, in contrast with, say, someone who worked in the theater, did absolutely no good, they explained. In luring or retaining women the way a doctor's salary could and did in the West. Quote, you had to be interesting, unquote. What pressure. And as one revealed, quote, I have much more power now as a man in unified Germany than I ever did in communist days. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's part of her argument that if there is economic independence for women and that the state takes care of their material needs for themselves and any children that they have, then money is not the main reason why they, they would enter into sexual intimate relations with men. And in you know, the way that she frames it is that well, that's bad for men because men then have to try to be decent people. See, but then she says that there, but then like, um
2: especially I think in the anecdote, she talks about how like well, I guess she was talking to a woman, but they were saying how like, you know, it felt like they had real relationships of camaraderie with men. So it's like, wouldn't that be better for a man, too? Like, she implies that, right,
1: throughout, that it would also be better for men. I think the one also interesting claim that she makes is that women didn't need to buy, because of these state supports and because of this gender contract with the state and the state's responsibility for women's well-being, they didn't have to buy into this universal male citizenship, you know, Uh, of the United States, like the liberal sort of understanding of citizenship, which is male and white and bourgeois and straight, you know? And I think what she says is that women were able to remain women. Like they could wear dresses and makeup. It's also woven throughout the book, this, this theme, right? Like look at all these astronauts or these women in leadership. They wore heels, you know? They didn't need to look like, you know, quote unquote, what a feminist looks like here in in the West, you know, we have a, we associate that image with. So this is very interesting because I do wonder if this also points to a certain dynamic in why there is a need to reproduce the nuclear family and in fact institutionalize the nuclear family in the Eastern Bloc countries and in the Soviet Union, uh, whereas before. Like, you know, living was quite communal, actually, for the majority, for 80% of people who were still peasants and lived in peasant communes or, you know, certain kind of living off the land, semi-feudal relationship with power and semi-feudal hierarchy. Why is there a need to institute a nuclear family ideal and this family form where children are both, yes, women can work outside the home. Uh, actually, they're encouraged to, and maybe that's okay, but still their work work within the household remains. And the promises that were made early in the revolution, say communal kitchens and much more, a broader understanding of daycare, like communal responsibility for raising children, right? Those weren't met. And in fact, there were really bad shortages in that regard. And women's health wasn't a priority. Um, where abortion, as she does say, was the number one birth control method, right? Um, so what is it about the private nuclear family that the Soviet Union and also Eastern Bloc countries reproduced? I think that's an elephant in the room, and that's what she doesn't answer. And I think socialism, in order to envision an alternative to neoliberal capitalism in which we're living today, uh, we need to deal with that contradiction.
0: Yeah, I think one of the in her discussion of maternity leave and, and childcare and sort of um distribution of household labors within a heterosexual couple, she'll say that, you know, in Bulgaria, for example, there was an attempt at reeducating men from when they were children to adolescents and, you know, put out a lot of um sort of articles and such to promote men playing an equal role in the house. And an equal child-rearing role, and to encourage them to take you know, paternity leaves and such, and those efforts largely failed. You know, so it, it seems like from so there were three, I guess, potentials: either women just do the double shift that they're outside of the house and they come home and they're also taking care of the kids, or that men and women are both outside of the work outside of the house, and there is an equal distribution of labor inside the house. But that requires the men cooperate and if the men don't cooperate and it's taken for granted at some point that they're not going to then the state has to step in and if the state didn't step in then it would just go back to like women doing everything and so there it seems like you know that was between the two alternatives that either they could make a nuclear family that could be gender inclusive and like share the household work equally um, and failing that then the state is available but the state provided resources also as you were saying there's like really uneven shortages of workers and like the quality is obviously going to be all over the place and so yeah but it seems like even in the discussion of sexuality and what was promoted it was about like love and like passion but love and passion ultimately leading to a nuclear family where children are produced and you know the
1: the society is reproduced. Can I do? Can I have a personal, personal anecdote? Um. Yeah, I think that in a lot of ways, immigrants here, like say, immigrant women who were born and you know formed as an somewhat as an individual in Eastern Europe, like maybe in the nineties, but the state socialist like thinking and around these gender norms, is, you know, it's prevalent even now. Um, I think they find it hard to understand the relationship, like when engaging in a relationship, with say in a in a like heteronormative relationship here in 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 Canada or in the US. I think they find it hard around equal partnership and the household as a business. This sort of because everything is about property and money. I think they find it difficult to understand the household as as a point of investment um, as, as partnership it's like you know actually here you settle down and you're partners for economic reasons because you're creating an economic comfortable space for each other and for the kids that you produce whereas in the Soviet Union and the post-Soviet places spaces I think yes it was the the basis for marriage was always love and that I think she's right on on that part. And I think, I think this is different perhaps in the Central Asian republics, but I think for the European part of, of the Soviet Union, this was the case where love was really, and I think this was imposed on Central Asian republics as well by the women's organizations, by the Soviet women's organizations, that the basis for marriage should be love and not a calculative transactional um, ideal or idea.
2: Yeah, something that I find kind of interesting is that under kind of neoliberalism, atomization, individualization, that kind of thing, right? Like, it does mean that women have at least the expectation to have less responsibility, even if it's not always materially true, right? But there is this idea that... You don't necessarily like it's not at least popular culture, right, for women to be doing the majority of the housework, even if that ends up happening in a lot of cases. Right. Uh, And I'm sure it does. But the idea is just that I think we've seen I don't know if this is completely true. Like I don't have a stat on it or anything, but it seems like maybe now more than ever, I think there's more, especially in North America and the West, women that don't necessarily play that role. And yet it's like, you know, things are really miserable for everyone. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I think this is why it's interesting when she says, like, you know, men actually had to be interesting to women. Maybe they had to have a sense of humor or something. Mm-hmm. Um, when I tell, like, white friends here in Canada, oh, like, we have divorces on all sides of my family. Like, all oh, my grandmothers said, like, two, maybe some, one for sure, and if not two divorces, you know. And they're like, what? But marriage isn't about that. Marriage is about sticking it through Hardship and you know love goes away anyway. So, but there it's like no love goes away. Goodbye. I'm leaving because I have my own apartment. I have like I don't need you. You know. It's so it's it's very interesting because I think it says something about a certain economic underpinning of this exchange. Uh, re- that the relationship, the ma- marriage, is about exchange, and it's about um, consolidating a certain comfortable, economically, financially viable place. No, yeah, I like I do agree with that, right? Um, obviously, I don't think anyone should feel stuck
2: um, in a relationship for economic reasons, or should even be in one for economic reasons, or in a kind of transactional way. But it's just interesting to me that I feel like under, like it, I don't know if this is completely true, but it feels like under neoliberalism, the even the idea of the family is also being completely kind of threatened, right? Yeah. So then it's like it's just an interesting thing, right? That like under something that is definitely not socialism we are seeing more of, uh, I'm sure, yes, like, it's true that I'm sure that a lot of people are stuck together for economic reasons, but also what's encouraged and what's kind of allowed for in kind of this individualistic way is that, yeah, you don't need to, like, you know, look out for your family, or you don't need to kind of make compromises or whatever, you know, you should look out for just yourself. And I don't think those things necessarily contradict their different conditions, right? But I just think it's it's an interesting thing. Like, if if this, if this we're going to take this argument for women's liberation, right, I guess it just, I wonder how it could come off to certain people who maybe don't feel like they have those pressures under, like,
1: neoliberalism. Mm, like, I don't need to be actually dependent on a man, I'm dependent on myself.
2: Yeah, like, I just need to find a corporate job or something yeah. like
1: that. That would be your ticket to freedom.
0: right? Well, I mean, one of the studies that she cites that's quite interesting is that um there's a couple of sociologists who look at different um, cohorts of Eastern European women born like right at the beginning of the soviet union towards the end of the soviet union and afterwards and the ones who were born and raised post-stalin they will say that love and passion and friendship were like the key sort of ways that they describe intimacy and sex and the love one i understood but the friendship one was kind of you know interesting and i think karma you were pointing to that 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 there was a certain kind of camaraderie that you, that sexual relations don't only have to happen in the context of a romantic relationship, but that there would be mutual respect and a certain kind of intimacy, nonetheless. Um, but what was interesting was that at the fall of the Soviet Union, um, so in the 90s and 2000s, the sort of main frameworks um, that dominate the societies for, for sex and sexuality are hedonism, or as these um, researchers described them, hedonism and instrumentalism, that there is this on the one hand, that like well, you know, I want to pursue my own maximum sexual pleasure, and however that happens in the context of whatever relations, like you know that's fine, and that's what I'm aiming for um and then the instrumentalism is like, yeah, we you know what you guys are saying that we need to figure out do something to either secure economic resources, status, or just like check off some boxes um that are socially acceptable. So that love no longer plays a role there or not, uh, and maybe is considered to be like an over-romanticized like a romanticized
1: ideal that really can't be pursued anymore. Yeah, that study really stood out to me as well because she also connects it to the new sort of post-Soviet, post-80s um, sex trade. Mm-hmm. So for the first time, borders are opened and the first... Resource that we send is sex workers or prostitutes, right? Uh, it's a funny thing. So, he- hedonism for whom, too? You know. And I mean, one of the things that was interesting is that when in the value
0: survey that she cites that where it compares like how Soviet youth or Eastern European youth feel about um, sex and sexuality compared to American youth, that uh, surprisingly, sex work. And sort of masturbation and sex without any attachment uh, was much more valued in the U.S. and among American youth compared to Soviet youth, who like really disapproved of sex work. But they disapproved of it interestingly because they would say that well, no woman is uh, under the compulsion economically. Um Because the state is taking care of her, but also that you know it would be really bad for her personal emotional development to have like uh emotionless sex, and similarly, you know they would say that masturbation or like having sex without any attachments is you know bourgeois kind of
1: uh,
0: <laughs> uh, you know, self indulgence whereas like sex should be a matter of like love and um and passion, which she says is a is a is a somewhat
1: conservative way of looking at sex but it's relational also right so whether or not it has to look like nuclear family whether or not it has to be heteronormative right I think the important part to take away the point to take away from that survey or like those conversations is that sex is relational and your well-being ultimately will be impacted by the other person's well-being who you're engaging with that person or more than one person you know so I think that's the main point. Yeah, and I think this points to this what karma was saying, right, about this individualism also. Um, not just in terms of marriage, but also the separation between, say, love and sex here.
2: Yeah, so maybe the argument should be that like for a really like a healthy kind of woman's liberation that would be good for women is uh to have a, a more collective kind of oriented society. Right. I, th- I feel like that's really the distinction there, right? Between um, the kind of individualistic freedom that, that you know, we could strive for here, even again, even though it's not, it, we don't actually get to experience it very often, uh, versus the kind that I think Gatsi is talking about in the USSR. And yeah, this idea, I think that you st- you did still, like things, I'm guessing still has to operate in, uh, you were still a part of some sort of collective, right? There was still this idea that you had collective responsibility towards more than just yourself, and maybe the difference between, yeah, like a nuclear family in that case or not is you have responsibilities not just to your nuclear family, but it goes kind of beyond that to like society at large. And that means whoever you have sexual relations with, you need to have this kind of
0: orientation too. Yeah, I guess like because if capitalist society primes us to see other people as a means to an end, then they then we also see them as a sexual means to an end. And like whether it's women seeking out economic goods, or even if they're not seeking economic goods, they're just seeking out like you know temporary pleasure. Um, but it, there is a certain kind of individualism and selfishness that permeates through so many relations, including the sexual one. So, sorry, I'm talking a lot, but I can just introduce something and then I will shut up. Um, so, in her chapter on uh, women in positions of power. Godzi starts off by saying that she was disappointed in, in the 2016 American election because Hillary Clinton lost and that she lost because she's a woman. Um, and so that chapter then talks about how in American society, in positions of political power and sort of corporate world, women are underrepresented Uh, Whereas in the Soviet bloc, although the parity, gender parity wasn't always achieved, there was an attempt to have women be widely represented in in politics and in uh, sort of economically decisive positions. And so what did you guys make of her discussion of women's representation in American society, of powerful places in American society? I mean, she did, I
2: think, again, one of this kind of like, on-the-fence thing, right? She was like, you know, representation is important, but for representation to be meaningful and reproduced all the time, like for, for it to be something that we constantly see, then uh, women need to be empowered in a more kind of fundamental way, which means that the, the conditions that lead to uh, women's subjugation need to be done away with, right? So I feel like that's kind of generally what she makes the argument for, which is fair enough, but I don't feel like, I don't, yeah, I don't remember her making, um, going into the idea of like representation versus a different kind of ideal. Like I don't feel like she pit any two things against each other necessarily.
1: Right. Um can I bring in a li- something else also, not just the uh, the book. Um so I think do you mean this one? This chapter, pants are not enough of, on leadership on leadership, right? Pancits are not enough on leadership. This is chapter three. Yeah, this is actually a discussion that she goes into in her other book, which is called Second World, Second Sex, I think. It's on the decade on women, the UN decade on women, and Eastern European women's organizations. And that book, this book also, but that book, and and Gatsi's previous sort of scholarly works, um, articles, they've spurred um, a debate in feminist studies more generally, between what some call revisionist feminist scholars, uh, which sometimes comes off as a pejorative term, you know, and other feminists, uh, someone by the name of uh, Nanette Funk, and in particular, she has had an exchange with Godsey about state socialist women's organizations. And one of the critiques is that, well, were they actually real in what they were doing? Were they authentic? Where was the authenticity of, in that representation, in what they took to the UN or what they took to the ILO, um, International Labour Organization, or what they pushed in post-colonial societies? Was there really authenticity? Did those organizations have any agency or were they totally just at the behest of the party and party line and whatever was ideologically uh, suitable to make the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc countries seem legitimate ideologically, right? And I think the critiques of that argument, of course, is on authenticity in particular and, you know, that it's basically a myth. What is, is there authenticity here in terms of like women's organizations? Is there a clear separation between them and the state Aren't they also engaging with the state in a way where they're navigating certain power relations, you know? And this assumption that Soviet women or Eastern Bloc women weren't agreeing with the party line, that they didn't agree that gender equality in the way that it was, you know, pushed, that they were basically forced by the totalitarian state to abide. And if they weren't, they would be able to, you know, go against whatever the party line was, or actually the other, the other option is that they were, they just had, didn't have any consciousness, you know, it was false consciousness. And I think, of course, those debates are non-debates, right? Because we, we know that agency is a tricky thing and that there's always a relationship between agency and structure. And that would be, you know, a basic sort of historical materialist tenant.
0: So actually, Alina, um, what your discussion made me think of was Godzi's discussion of uh, Alexandra Kollontai, who was the People's Commissar for Social Welfare and helped to found uh, the Soviet Women's Organization, the Zenot... Zenot Yeah. Um, and she seems to be a really interesting woman uh, in the leadership position in, of that era. And so an American journalist, Louise Brandt, had observed... Kollontai dealing with Bolshevik men, and this journalist reported in 1923, Madame Kollontai's political judgment, even from the standpoint of an orthodox communist, is often very bad. She has unlimited courage, and on several occasions has openly opposed Lenin. As for Lenin, he has crushed her with his usual unruffled frankness. Yet in spite of her fiery enthusiasm, she understands, quote-unquote, party discipline, and takes defeat like a good soldier if she had left the revolution four months after it began, she could have rested forever on her laurels. She seized those rosy first moments of elation just after the masses had captured the state to incorporate into the constitution laws for women which are far-reaching and unprecedented. And the Soviets are very proud of these laws, which already have around them the halo of all things connected with the constitution. Um, so Godsey says that when ties the proposals eventually became too much, uh, too much for the Soviet leaders to deal with, she would eventually be sent as the Soviet
1: ambassador ambassador to Norway to sort of get her out of there, get her away. I think, yeah, I think Gazi, well, the interesting fact is this, that Kolontai is one of the few who survived Stalin's purges. Hmm. So she was never touched. She was untouchable in that sense, in a good way. (laughs) Um, Because I think, yeah, I, I really think it had to do with the need to keep gender equality or women's emancipation they didn't use gender but women's emancipation as as an ideal as a living thing to point to see Mm. we don't touch that 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 is sacred and i think that's very important in the way in which the soviet union like developed post-stalin as well um but i do think that god seeking speak a bit more to what happened under Stalin, what happened in terms of these very radical revolutionary ideas, right? What happens in the 30s and then later 40s during the war, I think addressing that would be very important for for her readers. Hmm. And that explains, in in, in some ways, it explains what went wrong, but also the need to deal with those contradictions that were produced by that society, which was dealing with industrialization and the need to arm itself against, you know, U.S. imperialism. I wonder also this, this thought about, okay, so this debate that I was going to talk about with Nanette Funk and she calls them, you know, revisionist feminist scholars. So revisionist feminist scholars like Gotzi uh, and Annette Funk would argue overreach, right? Because of the neoliberal because of the ravages of neoliberal capitalism in Eastern Europe, in the Soviet in the former Soviet Union, that kind of influences their rational thinking about the way in which they should assess state socialist regimes. I don't think that's a valid argument. Why shouldn't it influence if the statistics, you know, not only statistics, but like people's real daily experiences very much speak in favor of the fact that, you know, that like state socialism was better for women and especially East German experiences, uh, women's experiences in East Germany after the reunification of Germany. And that's such a beautiful case in a sense, because it's really comparative, you know, you can really tell immediately which departments closed down. Uh, Women went back home, you know, um, all kinds of things, right? Like lost jobs immediately. So, yeah, why isn't that a valid reason? I mean, how can we evaluate any policies in a vacuum?
0: Of course, they're going to be evaluated relative to other geographical or historical
1: periods. And if this is what democracy looks like, well, maybe we don't want that, you know? Like this is actually really what's at the bottom of it. It's not valuable because people want to live, you know, yeah, and eat.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, I think this book, um, one of the things that it really focuses on is the shaping of society from the level of the state, right? That it is capitalist states versus socialist states. And so she really doesn't touch on money, like non-state actors or non-state sort of movements, which I think is, is a refreshing difference from so much of what we end up hearing whenever it's about marginalized groups in society. Civil society, yeah. new social movements. Exactly. And so I think to, to foreground the state, both to show like the enormous amount of power that it has, that it's capable of having, for one thing, to to impact something as intimate as sexual relations but also that like that that's not just something unique to like you know quote unquote authoritarian regimes that they try to get into your bedroom but that what was happening in the Soviet Union what the Soviet state decided to do ultimately like had a huge impact on well, how the US responded and there's uh you know a great a discussion of why in the in the 50s um, the Soviet space ventures, which uh, included women, freaked out the U.S. because they were like, "Holy shit! They, you know, they have double the brain power because the other <laughs> half of the population can be involved." And so, the sort of national education programs um, and uh, the encouragement of women to go into you know, science and technology. JFK cited national security concerns for why they need to put women into those fields, um, and similarly, but after the reunification of of Germany, it was East German women's expectations that were formed by state socialist policies for having childcare, which then helped West um, German women to be able to be like, okay, yeah, maybe we should expect that as well. And so, to foreground the state, I think, um, and to keep the conversation there is really is an important part of this book that I think is often missing in like, mainstream left discussions.
1: Yeah, I think that's very important. I also think, just building on what you said, I like the fact that she makes it clear that state socialism and post-war Keynesian welfare states were relational. One did not exist without the other. And in fact, whatever you can say about state socialism, it was a check on capitalist regimes here right in the west so did you want your welfare state you wanted the weekend well thanks to state socialism you know it's mm-hmm. kind of like this um so and which was gone in the 90s everywhere uh, so i think that's very important it's it's a different understanding of history which is not we it, it's not separate right these developments aren't separate and in fact the soviet union and the United States were in this like symbiotic relationship with each other, right? Competing for the alternative, which is also the reason why I don't think it's sufficient to just point to the
0: Scandinavian countries because they don't represent that kind of pressure. They don't represent an alternative enough that it's threatening, and so to just say that oh, let's just be inspired by them and we can just pick those policy options as if like that choice is available for you know, in the U.S. political landscape. The the Cold War context was. Like very different. Like it was a national security concern of whether we're going to to concede certain things to certain populations in the U.S. And so I think like I think there is much to be developed in why simply just pointing to Scandinavian countries is not enough in this contemporary context to say that well you know they're good let's be like them and then we'll have the best of both worlds.
2: Yeah. Overall, um, I do think. It's it's an indicative of again the times that the book was out at all. You know, it was. I think it was out in twenty eighteen, and you know, I think it is kind of indicative of of maybe where politics is at. Again, I think I did. I do think it made some good interventions, especially in the kind of um, the binary that's always set up of like Marxism or intersectionality or whatever. I think it was a good intervention to those debates generally and made a cohesive argument generally that also like had anecdotes from a, a real life. A uh, historical moment, but also kind of pointed to to contemporary uh, things, right? Contemporary context. So, yeah, I thought it was a really good intervention. She meant it to be kind of a mainstream response. She didn't mean for it to be like you were saying an academic text. She said that herself, right? So, uh, for what it is, I think it's it's a pretty it's a pretty good book.
1: I think, yeah, I think for me, it's what I really do like about it is that it is contending with the renewed calls to find an alternative to neoliberal capitalism, including carefully studying the the state socialist past. And and what I like about it is that it's a practical examination of the gender contract. Like, how does it look institutionally? Like, what can we do now? What is this policy knowledge that we need to get in order to implement? And how do we do that, right? So experiments in socialism, we're looking for an alternative. Let's see what they've done. And I really like this practical approach, you know, in in her in her book. I think one thing that's necessary for that to happen is dealing with the contradictions that state socialism produced and the internal contradictions to that mode of production, to that political economy, you know, and the gender contract. So I think that dealing with those contradictions is necessary precisely for the search for this alternative to neoliberal capitalism. And that does have to do with the nuclear family, with the way in which certain women benefited more and others less, and others were totally marginalized. And I think it's it's a holistic approach to gender, right?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, even though the title is quite cheeky and, and it's trying to be provocative and um, and, and prioritizing, women's sexual experience as a, a sort of metric of judging uh, an economic socioeconomic system or political economic system i think it ends up making a good case for why something like women's sexual experiences into in, in the intimacy of uh, you know their bedrooms like that is so fully informed by everything that's happening in the society around them and that those conditions are determined not just by sort of world historical events like the Russian Revolution and the Cold War and the sort of rivalry between nations, um, but but that those things end up informing how women see themselves and and see their bodies and see their relationships to men and to the children that they bring out of their bodies. And so I think exploring socialism and socialist policies through that lens really helps to... Illustrate something about those societies, which I don't think we often, even as leftists, get insights into. I think as leftists, we sort of just embrace, you know, uh, a sort of cold, grey, um, like theoretical, <laughs> concrete and building and looking like concrete buildings. <laughs> like it's okay, we can sacrifice prettiness <laughs> because you know economic uh, security is important. But I think even for leftists, I think it's a, it's an Im- and as leftist women, uh, it is a valuable text to uh, to open up our aspirations, and I think yeah there there are certainly limits to it, and I do wish there was much more that we got about like the texture of life and even you know the texture of what those um collective childcare or collective laundry or collective cafeterias were like, how did that impact women's like nine to five or you know, existence, and so those sort of textures would would be really useful, but I think this opens up an arena of research that is bringing it out of the strictly sort of academic realm into a sort of popular sphere. And hopefully, you know, it does open up the conversation a bit more and, and and challenge what leftists, I think, have maybe become a little bit complacent in of how sexuality and sexual freedom is a certain kind of, you know, as long as there's consent, anything goes. I think like, we can expand... On sexuality and love being much more meaningful and much more significant to our lives and the lives of like people
1: around us. Ah, uh, yeah. I I think one great achievement of this book is that she truly does make sexuality, women's sexuality, political, and in the, not in a way that's you know only left for the bourgeoisie, only left for the liberal classes, only left for the feminists you know official feminist big quotation marks around that only left for you know gender studies departments um but actually no she makes sexuality an everyday concern a popular concern and a right sexuality and fulfillment women's fulfillment she makes it truly political and that's important because that speaks to the majority that speaks to the people you know to women like my grandmother or my mother and their everyday life And that's beautiful. So thanks for tuning in to this episode of Oats for Breakfast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't done so yet. If
2: you're
0: on iTunes, give us a rating and a review to help us reach more people. And if you'd like to support us in making more eco-socialist content, you can go to patreon.com forward slash oats
1: for breakfast and become a patron. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you again soon. Bye.